All right, well, good morning. Uh, today we are uh, continuing on in our series, uh, Stories of Old, A Journey Through the Old Testament. And as the disclaimer has said, and as you can probably guess based on the story that was read, um, today's a little heavier than most weeks, right? Um, this is part of why we uh, came up with pumpkin time, right? So uh, little ears could get out of the room so we could have uh, a bit of an honest conversation about the story and um, as I said in my email uh, that I sent out a couple weeks ago, um, like I, I think it's really important for us as a community of faith to be able to have these sort of like hard and honest sorts of conversations. Um, but as I also said in my email, um, I recognize that uh, some have experienced these sorts of things like violence and abuse firsthand, and uh, that conversations like this can be um, particularly difficult or particularly triggering. And so, again, just as, as a disclaimer, invitation, whatever the, the appropriate word is, uh, um, engage as you feel comfortable. Uh, take care of yourself as we, we talk, right? Uh, if that means zoning out, if that means scrolling Facebook, if that means even maybe uh, getting up and stepping out, like, all of that is okay. Uh, again, this is good for us as a community of faith that's trying to walk in the way of Jesus to confront these sorts of things. Um, but not at the expense of our own sort of healing and wholeness on the other side of, of those experiences. So um, with a disclaimer like that, uh, maybe it's good uh, to pause for a word of prayer as we jump in. Loving God, uh, we are grateful uh, for the gift of this community and uh, the chance to, to gather together today. God, as we uh, turn now and wrestle with the scriptures together, um, we yield ourselves to your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, while I certainly wasn't as enmeshed in it as others in my generation, uh, I definitely grew up within the midst of this movement called purity culture. And everybody that's a millennial just smiled and chuckled to themselves, yeah. <laughs> if you're not familiar with purity culture, it was this movement within uh, Christianity, particularly like the evangelical expressions of Christianity, and even more particularly like the conservative uh, understandings of evangelicalism, that placed this heightened importance and value on sex. And while it placed this heightened importance and value on sex and saw it as like the pinnacle of human existence, right, uh, it saw it as like this thing that needed to be protected at all costs. And ironically, it also saw it as like perhaps the greatest danger to be protected against at all costs. And uh, in recent years, um, purity culture has drawn an awful lot of criticism, <laughs> both by from like some of the movers and shakers within it. I mean, we had the guy that wrote the book uh, said, please don't read my book and asked the publisher to take it down, right? But I think there's also those of us that grew up in the midst of it that like... Um, are calling out some of the perhaps lack of fruit that it produced in our life as a result of it, right? Um, now, as with like uh, most uh, movements that had a good intention, I want to like acknowledge that there's perhaps a nugget of goodness to it, right? Um, because this this cared an awful lot about uh, sex and sexuality, uh, as and I think that's a good thing, right? Uh, as one author puts uh, put it, uh, this points to that, meaning uh, that uh, this. We have this um, 
inherent desire within us for some sort of like connection with another, some sort of intimacy with another. And this is what's often referred to as like sexuality, right? Um, but we also have this inherent desire within us for this like intimate sort of connection with the divine. And this is what we might call like our spirituality, right? And so this, meaning our sexuality, in some ways points to that, our spirituality, that th these two things are somehow interwoven together, but this one is subordinate to this one, and this points to that. Now, if this is the case, like, this is absolutely something that's worth, like, cultivating, right? This is something that's worth maybe protecting. It's something that, that's worth taking at, like, utmost importance, right? Um, but to like put this at the pinnacle of human existence, to put all of this pressure upon it, to spend billion, millions of dollars in conferences to create all sorts of alternative balls and galas and uh, a whole new uh, marketing system around things like purity rings. Like, is that like the best response to it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Again, I think those that grew up in the midst of it would say that maybe the, the, there's a lack of fruit that it produced that it promised in our life. Yeah. So some of the problems uh, that uh, I see that have popped up with purity culture is, first off, again, like, I think it, it makes sex something that it was never intended to be. Again, it puts it at like the very pinnacle of human existence. Second of all, uh, it, it overemphasized it to like a negative degree, right? Um, because most of the talks were like, don't, don't think about sex, don't think about sex, don't think about sex. If I were to tell you don't think about an elephant, what are you going to think about? Everybody's thinking about an elephant, right? And so you get all these teenagers who have all of like this flux of emotion and thinking about sex already, and then you say, don't think about sex, and they're like, ah, right? But then it also created awkward dynamics between guys and girls, right? And again, in a time when these dynamics are already awkward, right? Uh, and it just heightened that. There's another problem that I see with purity culture, and this one will take just a, a second to work its way through. So the way that these purity culture talks often went in youth groups were the guys and girls were split up, almost always, right? Uh, and when guys and girls were split up, you knew like it was going to be a juicy sort of night, right? So girls go off to their own room, and I acknowledge uh, I was only privy to like one or two of these conversations because I was a youth ministry intern, right? So I'm, here, I'm, I'm sharing this mostly on hearsay. But these conversations for the ladies uh, often revolved around like what we might call like the three C's, right? The first C being clothing. Be careful what you wear. Make sure nothing is too revealing, nothing too short, nothing too low cut, because uh, your clothing may be uh, paving the way for um, either uh, unwanted advances or subconsciously wanted advances, right? Uh, the second C being communication. Be careful how you are communicating with others. Are you being too flirtatious with how you talk? How is your body language? What's your posture? Again, our communication can be paving the way to uh, advance, advances. The third C being consumption. When you're out in public, be careful what you're consuming because what you're consuming can communicate something. And uh, if you're not at the top of your game, again, this could uh, pave the way to advances. That's the ladies' talk. The guys' talk went a little different, and the guys' talk revolved around one thing. Don't look at pornography. <laughs> now think about this dynamic that exists here, right? Something feels unfair, right? Because within these conversations, there's an awful lot of responsibility that falls to the ladies in this dynamic, right? And this is... a. Uh, really unfortunate because as all of the responsibility shifts to the ladies, there, there seems to be this lack of acknowledging another dynamic that's at play. And that's the dynamic of power. See, within all of our uh, dynamics throughout our life, there are power dynamics that are at 
play, um, even if these power dynamics are just simply perceived. Now, I say this word perceived with a good bit of caution, right? Uh, I say perceived power dynamics, uh, meaning that they're not like absolute core truths, that these power dynamics are not like built within the, the, the establishment of creation itself. In fact, we see the opposite of these power dynamics that play throughout like our origin stories in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we see in Genesis 1, um, the author writes that uh, God created male and female in the image of God. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female in the image of God, God created them. This overemphasis that, that, that um, all of humanity bears the image of God, not one over the other. In Genesis 2, we see that God created the first human and saw that it wasn't good for this first human to be alone. And so put this first human to sleep and pulled from their rib uh, to create a second human uh, to be a helpmate. This first human becomes the male named Adam and the second human becomes uh, the woman named Eve. And Eve assumes this role of helpmate. This word that gets translated helpmate is used elsewhere throughout the Hebrew Bible to refer to God's relationship to Israel. Meaning that there's some sort of mutuality that exists here, not a power dynamic. So I say perceived because like, these aren't like, core absolute truths about how power dynamics work. But I don't say perceived as if to mean like, these aren't experienced in real life flesh and blood because I would be really ignorant to suggest that there aren't actually power dynamics that are, have been uh, twisted and created and felt particularly from um, our sisters. Because the way that our society, the way that our culture, and unfortunately even the way that our, our, our theologies uh, have gone about is creating a, a power dynamic and a power hierarchy that puts men in first place with all of the power and women below them without the power. And so again, we come back to these, uh, these purity talks where all of the responsibility is placed, within, placed on the women. And if you hold all of the responsibility but none of the power... Like, that is a breeding ground for things like shame. These intense feelings that say, like, to the core of who you are, you are flawed. And if that wasn't bad enough, all of the responsibility without any of the power is a breeding ground for things like violence and abuse. Now, violence and abuse, um, both fortunately and unfortunately, have been uh, um, talked about a lot lately. Uh, particularly as it relates to power. Uh, fortunately, because like, it's a reality in our world, and unfortunately, because it's a reality <laughs> in our world, right? Uh, and as a result of this, uh, there's one particular story uh, from Scripture that has been brought into the spotlight and put under the microscope, uh, and that's the story of David and Bathsheba. So uh, we just read this, but let's, let's work through some of this together again. So uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verse 1, we read, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, in a day and age when you don't have things like bold, italics, or underline uh, at your disposal, the way that you communicated something important was through repetition. So here in this opening line, we're already told, kings normally go out to battle. But where's David? Not out at battle, right? 
this is like a big red flag from the very beginning. That David is supposed to be doing something, but David is not doing something. That David is not living up to his responsibilities or his expectation as a king. From the very opening line of the story, this is to suggest that David is the one who falls short throughout the story because David can't even get his act together from the very beginning of the story. Now from this point on, we get to, we get to the meat of the story, if you will. This is where the thing in the story happens. And I think uh, it's important to keep in the back of our mind what is the thing that happens between David and Bathsheba? What, what sort of label is appropriate for what takes place between David and Bathsheba? So we read, read in the next line, it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house, the palace, that, uh, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. So the story begins with uh, David walking on the roof of the palace, which might have been a normal thing to do in the afternoon. You get a cool breeze, right? It's a nice place to hang out. But this seems like a really fascinating detail within the story because it tells us something about him physically, right? He's on top of the king's palace, and you can imagine that the king's palace is somewhere big and high and overlooking the territory that he rules, right? Like physically, he's looking down upon everything. But I think this is also suggesting something symbolically, right? Because this is David's place within the society. That David finds himself at the very top of the society. That David is the one who... Um, uh, looks down upon everybody else, and everybody else serves him. David has all of the power, and nobody even comes close to touching him. So again, David is up on the top, looking down, and then he sees a woman bathing. Now this is odd for us in the 21st century, right? And we're like, well, why is she seen bathing, right? Why is she bathing in a way that can be seen? Which raises this question of like, well, is she the one to be blamed then, right? Like, she's out in, in the open being bathing. Like, is she the one to be blamed for this? Well, the short answer is no. Um, <laughs> see, this is in a day and age when, like, they didn't have indoor plumbing. And so, like, for us, this is a strange thing because we have literally a room dedicated to baths, right? A bathroom, which has, like, private walls and a door and a private curtain and frosted windows and a curtain over the window, right? Like, bathing is a very private thing for us. But in this day, like, it, it wouldn't have been. Like, they didn't have things like indoor plumbing. And so what they had instead was, and I'll try and not throw up as I say it, public bathing pools. I don't even like taking baths myself. Like, the, 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 the grossness just floats around, right? Like, I, I, don't like, I don't like that myself. So, like, a public expression of that just really gives me the heebie-jeebies. But, like, that would have been really common in this day, right? So one author notes... Uh, if Bathsheba, by the way, we finally get this woman's name, if Bathsheba is bathing in a public pool, then she can hardly be implicated for immodesty. And if she's bathing in the courtyard of her own home, her bath is more private than normal. In fact, the text never says that she was naked. Isn't naked an obvious inference? Not necessarily. Uh, we, the author, lived for two years in the Philippines and regularly visited a crowded, crowded Muslim neighborhood with no indoor plumbing. 
Despite rather strict notions of modesty, men and women found ways to scrub clean under adequate cover, usually generous tube skirts for both men and women. A public approach to hygiene may be foreign to many of us, but it's quite common in some areas of the world. Hmm. So why was Bathsheba bathing somewhere where she could be seen? Because that's what she did. <laughs> so again, is Bathsheba to blame for what takes place? No. Which makes what happens all the more, that makes what happens next all the more disturbing. So David looks upon her, sees that she's very beautiful, sends servants to go and get her, and she comes back and he lays with her, which is a biblical euphemism. And at this point, we pause and we ask, like, didn't she have some sort of say in this, right? Isn't there like an issue of consent in this activity between David and Bathsheba? And again, the, the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, this issue of consent or this idea of consent that we have in the 21st century is pretty absent to the Bible. Um, the, the biblical worldview of the day like didn't have much to say about consent. But rather, um, and, and that's because like women in this time were viewed as like property of their husbands. And so husbands could say or do what it whatever they wanted to their wives as they would any other part of property that they had. So the Bible doesn't actually speak or care much about this idea of consent, but it does care an awful lot about this idea of adultery, which is like to say that one man can't take another man's wife for himself, which, by the way, David is guilty of regardless, right? So the Bible doesn't speak a whole lot about consent, but it speaks an awful lot about adultery. And so... And yet, like, while, the, while consent might be foreign to the, the biblical worldview, and while it might not be that important to the author of 2 Samuel, consent is part of our worldview, and consent is uh, important to us in the 21st century. So I think we can still ask the question of the story, did Bathsheba consent? Did Bathsheba have some sort of choice in the matter? And again, the answer is, no. Because again, this is David. David who walks not just physically on top of the kingdom, but symbolically on top of the kingdom, at the very top of the hierarchy, at the pinnacle of what it means to be important, holding all of the power where nobody else could touch him. It's fascinating to note that throughout the story, uh, David's name is used repeatedly. And yet Bathsheba's name is used very infrequently. And instead she's referred to as the woman or the wife of Uriah. And it seems as though the author's trying to communicate in some way that David is the one who's in control of the situation. David's the one who has power. But Bathsheba, who by the way her, is married to a foreigner, which meant that she would have had even less rights in the day, is sort of this passive character who just gets tossed to and fro from those with power throughout the story. See, for Bathsheba to say no to David wouldn't have actually been a reality. And if you can't say no, then saying yes is hardly actually saying yes. See, we can talk about things like consent, we can talk about things like choice, but we can't talk about consent and choice without also talking about power. There was an unfortunate... Um, all too similar uh, sort of example that took place this past year in a really prominent uh, church referred to, or known as uh, the Meeting House. Uh, the Meeting House is an Anabaptist community in Canada, and they have like 5,000 members across 
various campuses. It's like one of the largest Anabaptist churches in North America, and it's one of the largest uh, churches, regardless of denominational affiliation in Canada. And they had this really um, influential and, dare I say, famous pastor by the name of Bruxy Cavey. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was really influential, really famous. Uh, like, I followed his stuff. Like, I found him to be a really captivating communicator. I thought he explained things, like, really big topics in really simple ways that were easy to understand. Like, I, I appreciated uh, what he had to offer. Um, but at one point, news broke that he was placed on administrative leave, which is always like a big red flag that there was some sort of sexual misconduct. And so uh, the church placed him on administrative leave, and they hired a third-party investigator. And on March 8th, um, it was announced that the board had asked Bruxy to resign. They, they asked him to resign so that he would have some ownership, some responsibility in what took place, rather than just firing him. And then he issued a public statement that said, I had an extramarital affair. He said, this is my deepest, darkest sin. It's the worst thing I've ever done. That same day on March 8th, uh, the meeting house held a public forum where they invited the, the church and the community to come in and ask uh, questions and to give answers. And again, the church read the statement that Bruxy had had an extramarital affair. Now the next day, um, the internet blew up as the internet does. And there was all sorts of questions around this phrase, extramarital affair. And the woman who came forward with the, the allegation, who chose the, the, the pseudonym of Hagar, um, also released a statement that day. Her statement said, this began during a pastoral counseling relationship, she said in the statement. I was in crisis and trusted him, and I did not nor could I consent to a sexual relationship with him. This was not for me an extramarital relationship or affair. It was a devastating twist of pastoral care into sexual abuse. By the way, when this happened, she was 23 and he was 46. So the next day on March 10th, the church uh, convenes for another public forum. And they say, this wasn't an extramarital affair. This was an issue of sexual abuse by our pastor. See, we can talk about things like consent. We can talk about things like choice but we cannot talk about consent and choice without also talking about power. Because power makes things like choice and consent um, anything less than clear. Now all of this makes me wonder if like, perhaps um, the, the founders of the purity culture movement uh, made a mistake in focusing solely on like, sex and sexual intimacy and sexual relationships rather than perhaps turning their attention to this idea of power. Because again, as we've seen, like power is certainly uh, interwoven in these ideas of sex and sexual, sexual intimacy and sexual relationships. Um, there's a, a, a professor at uh, AMBS, one of the Mennonite seminaries, by the name of Susanna Larry. Um, she recently wrote a book called uh, Leaving Silence, which looks at um, all of the, or looks at a number of the, the stories of sexualized violence in uh, scripture. And she uh, says this in regards to her use of the term sexualized violence. She says, I prefer the term sexualized violence, uh, sexualized violence to sexual violence simply because the best research from the social sciences suggests that what we think of as sexual violence isn't primarily sexual at all. No, the, the violence is usually about power. 
people's misguided and sinful desire to hold power over others, to overcome their own feelings of powerlessness by exploiting others, can manifest itself in acts that wreck lives. Sometimes these types of behaviors appear sexual in nature. Are these inappropriate actions about sex fundamentally? No. Yet they have to do with the way we express and understand ourselves as sexual beings. That's why I'll often use the term sexualized violence. Again, uh, to talk about sex without talking about power is to create a breeding ground, again, for things like shame, but also violence and abuse. Because these things go hand in hand so intimately. So I wonder if perhaps... uh, what would have been a better pivot, or a better, so I, I wonder when it comes back to like purity culture, if it would have been more helpful instead of like asking all of these questions about sex and purity, if instead uh, the founders of this movement had begun to really dig in and ask this question of what do we do with our power? And I think that this is a vital question for us to ask um, first because like it, it forces us to like name the places in our lives where we, we actually have power. Because power dynamics, again, are, are all around us. And power is um, often invisible and unseen by those of us who have power, but it is almost always seen and visible by those who don't have power. And so by asking this question, we have to confront the places where we have power, and there's uh, power at play in all of the, the relational dynamics that we have in our life, right? All of our relational dynamics, whether it be a, an intimate person or uh, a family member or friends, like there are power di- dynamics at play. There are power dynamics in our workplace. There are power dynamics within our churches. There are power dynamics within our neighborhoods. There's power dynamics based on uh, race and uh, sexuality and socioeconomic status and educational levels, right? Like there are all of these layers of power dynamics, And we have to ask this question, what do we do with our power in order to be able to name it and see it and know how it is that we're actually going about using it? But this is an important question to ask, secondly, because it forces us to reckon with the ways in which we do use our power. Do we use our power to consume people as commodities? Because I think when we choose to consume people as commodities... This is the source of violence and abuse. By the way, we see this in multiple ways throughout the story of David and Bathsheba. Certainly we see it expressed in sexualized violence between David and Bathsheba, but we also see it in David's murder of her husband Uriah by sending him to the front lines, right? He saw Uriah as a problem to be taken care of, a commodity that he could consume for his own desire to fulfill his own power and sent him out to experience this violence. And the problem with this is um, that for survivors of violence and abuse, uh, because they've experienced violence and abuse from those who have power, a place of power in their life, it's often difficult for them to trust anybody who's in a position of of power in their life ever again, uh, even if that includes God, the one that we call almighty, all powerful. Later on in her book, uh, Susanna Larry would go on to write, for some survivors, seeing how power is abused in our world in ways that allow and even encourage sexualized violence may undercut their confidence in God's power as part of their healing. We might even wonder if God can be exempt from the type of corruption that often comes from power. After all, much of the suffering that survivors of sexualized violence experience is done in God's name. 
For me, though, God's hands are the only place where this type of power feels safe. That's because for me, the life and passion of Jesus Christ shows us what God does with power. Given a position of privilege, divine privilege even, Jesus gives it all away. Jesus' power goes not towards controlling others or exposing their vulnerabilities, but towards emptying himself to close the gap between heaven and earth. He is our perfect model of how to handle privilege in a godly way. God holds all authority of the world that belongs rightfully and only to God and uses it to bear witness to the least powerful and to find, way, find a way for them out of the wilderness and into freedom and healing. This is, the, this is the God who bears witness to our stories of sexualized violence. The God who takes on power only to give it away for our sake. This is a power that can be trusted. So when we ask this question, what do we do with our power? We have an alternative to consume people as uh, commodities. And that is, we can walk in the way of Jesus and empty ourselves of our power. Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, uh, writes to them, encouraging them. And he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Meaning, take on the same mindset, the same sort of perspective, the same sort of worldview, the same sort of thought process that was in Christ Jesus himself, who... And then he goes on to quote this uh, early Christian hymn. So think about that experience Wednesday when you're walking and subconsciously start whistling the hymn. That's like deeply worked into your soul, right? Like this is the sort of thing that would have been worked into their soul. Who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, grasped, taken advantage of, to consume others as a commodity, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, this is what divine power looks like. A power that doesn't consume others as a commodity, but a power that chooses to empty itself of that power for the sake of others. This is what divine power looks like, and this is a power that can be trusted. Not just for our own sort of healing and wholeness on the other side of violence and abuse, but a, a power that can be trusted for us to see as a model and an example and a way forward in our own lives. What if we as followers of Jesus asked what it meant to take on the, the same mind of Jesus and as it relates to the power that we hold in the world around us? This isn't to say that we deny that we have power in, our, in this world. This isn't to say that we refuse positions of power. This isn't to say that we run from positions of power. But it is to say that we empty ourselves of power or perhaps a more helpful word is leverage whatever power we have for the sake of others. Now, I recognize that that can be a bit abstract. So um, as an example, and before I give this example, I recognize this comes from my own life, okay? Which may seem like I'm putting myself on a pedestal. But I will quickly confess, like, I fall short of these examples in my own life, right? Um, and I, I would actually love to hear during God at Work some ways that you empty yourself of power. But all I have to offer is my own lived experience. So bear with me on this. Um, one of the ways that I attempt to empty myself of power is uh, maybe what we can call transparent accountability. I'll ask you a question. Who is my boss at church? You can't name one person, can you? 
Constitution says there's at least 15 people that are my boss, right? You have the elders who oversee part of my job, and then you have church council that oversees another part of my job. And then we have this new thing called uh, executive committee of church council, which oversees another part of my job, right? I have like 15 bosses, which means that there's an awful lot of eyes uh, on me as an individual, uh, or maybe we can even say it as crassly, as an employee of the church, right? Um, And because there's an awful lot of eyes on me, that's an awful lot of eyes making sure that I'm living in a respectable and responsible way. Which means that if I were to to screw up in some way, do something reckless, do something irresponsible, do something violent or abusive, um, quite frankly, I would have to be a lot smarter than I am to like try and cover that up from all of these eyes, right? And while it's frustrating at times because like if I want to get permission to do something, I have to send out an email to like 15 people, I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm really grateful to have that sort of transparent accountability in my life. Um, I do this outside of church as well. Like, uh, Allie and I have this uh, within our relationship. Um, she has full access to my calendar. She can grab my phone, my computer, whenever. Um, I tell her who I'm meeting with, where I'm meeting with them. Uh, she has access to my location on my phone. Um, and again, we, we don't do this because we don't trust each other. We do this so that we don't ever have a reason to not trust one another, Right? There's been seasons in my life where um, I've invited one, two, three different people into my life to have like unfettered access. Ask me any sort of question, like uh, all of the questions that I don't want to answer, right? Like because uh, for whatever reason there was something that I was I was dealing with in that season, and I needed that sort of accountability in my life. With all of these things, do I have the power to refuse that kind of uh, accountability? Absolutely. But I choose not to because that's how I empty myself of that power is to welcome in uh, accountability in a transparent sort of way. Um, one other way that I do this is through um, bringing other voices to the table. Uh, so I don't know if you could tell, but I am a uh, straight, white, Christian, middle-class male who's also tall and has a deep voice. All of these factoring layers of like privilege and power in our society, right? Which means uh, like I see the world from a particular perspective. Um, and I have this responsibility of getting up and, and, and preaching uh, 75, 80% of the time throughout a year, right? Which means that if I'm not careful, like I'm, I'm just preaching from this perspective when not all of you have that same sort of uh, perspective, right? Um, so I, I, I bring other voices to the table in my life, meaning like I commit myself to learning from uh, voices of women and voices of people of color as much as I can. And uh, particularly as it relates to like sermon writing, and I often try and quote these people explicitly to like show my work, if you will. Again, I don't do it perfect. I quoted three white guys last week, but I, I'm working on it, right? Um, but I, again, I don't, I don't have to like, I have the power not to do this, right? Um, but I empty myself of that and put myself under the power of others. And I wonder what would have happened if David had done this, right? If David had, you know, like one or two or a few uh, female advisors in his life, right? Maybe he would have stopped seeing women as commodities to be consumed, but instead maybe saw them as, oh, I don't know, like equals uh, in all of this, right? Um, So those are a couple examples. And again, I would love to hear during God at Work uh, ways that you do this in your own life. Friends, uh, if you uh, yourself have uh, experienced uh, a misuse of power, if you've experienced violence or abuse, I'm sorry. Uh, 
And I'm, I'm, I'm especially sorry if that has ever come within the confines of a church community. And I'm especially sorry if it's ever come from somebody in a position like mine. We as your church community, we see you. We believe you. And we love you. And more importantly than any of that, so does God. Another story of sexualized violence in the Bible comes from a, a woman named Hagar who um, uh, was used in a, a devastating way by Abraham to try and fulfill God's covenant. And then once it became apparent that that wasn't going to be a good option, was kind of like disposed of as if she were just simply property. And as she's running away, fleeing for her life while pregnant, she has this encounter with God. And in that moment, she names God El Roy, the God who sees. God sees you. God believes you, and God loves you. Um, we have a number of resources in our uh, bulletin today. Uh, if you are experiencing uh, something presently or need to work through that, um, or you can talk to me, talk to one of our elders. Like You do not have to do this alone. Um, may we, uh, as a church, be a community that takes power seriously. And as we follow Jesus together, may we take our power and take our nod about power from Jesus and empty ourselves of it for the sake of others. Amen.